Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. And uh, Thank you, Aaron and the band. Great to see you guys again as we continue worshiping today. Welcome and thank you for joining us for week two of our series called Crucial Questions, where we are taking some of the most frequently asked questions about Christianity, the Bible, faith, and culture, taking these questions from you, by the way, and answering them throughout this series. Last week, we introduced the series with what we called our ground rules and our guiding principle for this series. So if you missed it, you can get that message on our website, or you can also go on our podcast. And it was kind of a detailed introduction, and so we're not going to be able to do all of that every week. And so if you missed it, it'd be a good thing for you to go listen to it uh, again from last week. So But I think one of the things that we said last week that's worth repeating as we continue this week is that that as we are working through this series, what we are focusing on is we are presenting what we believe as Christians. And specifically what we're doing is approaching it from a biblical perspective. So in other words, we're asking not just what do we feel like and what what are our opinions about this issue, what are our opinions about this topic, but what does God have to say through his word, as we talked about last week, the Bible being God's words to us. So what does God have to say in his personal word to us about these things? Now, so with that in mind, the question that we're looking at today is a big and important question. In fact, it's such a big and important question that we're going to be exploring it over two parts. We're going to look at the first part this week, and we're going to look at the second part next week. And the question is this, can we trust the Bible? Now, to be clear, this question was not a specific question that was asked through our website, but it is more of an umbrella-type question that's going to address some of the questions that were asked. Some of these questions that related to things like the reliability of the Bible and how we got the Bible in its current form today. Is the Bible full of fairy tales, or can we actually trust the historical accounts that are contained in the Scriptures? Those kinds of things. And I think this is a good place to say that this is, in general, how we're going to approach the rest of the series. We've gotten 60 questions or so already through our website, and so we've only going to, we're only going to be covering this series about 12 or 15 weeks. And so quick math tells you that we're not going to be able to hit every single question every week. Um, So kind of what we're doing is packaging some of these together. So like two or three questions at a time and then giving an umbrella question that can answer those questions in totality. So that's what we're going to do here this morning. This question about can we trust the Bible breaks down into some smaller questions that we're going to address throughout this sermon and then into next message as well. Okay, so um, this question again, can we trust the Bible? I don't know how you would respond to that. I think most of us would probably say yes, but probably most of us also know that the answer isn't that simple. The question of if we can, can trust the Bible really comes down to a few key issues that typically have to do with how we end up with the modern Bible that we have today. This book, by the way, that claims to be the very words of God, claims to have the authority and the power of all of who God is, and tells us the the most important story about the history of the world. Certainly, this Bible claims some pretty amazing things. In many ways, the biggest claims that have ever been made by any book in human history. On top of that, the central story of this book, the one account that the entire book relies upon, is that a man named Jesus from Nazareth existed in history. 
And not only that he existed, but he was born to a virgin about 2,000 years ago, that he claimed to be God, that he performed miracles like healing people and raising people from the dead and walking on water, that he was crucified on a Roman cross, that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven where he now reigns as the king of the universe. So no matter what we say about how much we can trust the historical accounts of the Bible and what it claims to be and what it claims to teach, there is obviously going to be some amount of faith that's involved in this in terms of what the Bible claims to be and what it says. But for those things that we can talk about in terms of what we can prove about what the Bible has to say historically— um, it's going to require that we do what's called biblical apologetics. Now, you may have heard the phrase or the term apologetics before. Apologetics simply means defense of the faith. So when we are doing biblical apologetics, what we're saying is that we are defending the claims of the Bible to the degree that we can. And we're actually encouraged to do this in Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says this to us, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you and yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, this is one of the main places we're given the mandate for doing apologetics, for providing a defense for the reason and the hope that we have, which implies a couple of things, obviously, that there is a reason for the hope we have, and it can be reasonably talked about, and also that we can probably expect that people are going to debate or object or maybe even uh, question what we believe. And many people outside the faith obviously do. We have people who are skeptics about not only the Bible, but about the story of Christianity, about who Jesus was and actually what he claimed and what he did. And so this morning we're going to be engaging in a form of biblical apologetics, defending the Bible, because that's what we're talking about today. Whether the Bible is trustworthy and whether it is reliable. And so if you're a Christian, this will be a helpful discussion for you. Even if you wholeheartedly trust the Bible and have no doubt about whether or not it is true and it is the word of God. And I realize that for some of us, when we hear the word apologetics in a Christian context, you are completely not interested, and I get it. For some of you, apologetics just kind of calls to mind an image of full-throated debates with red-faced people just yelling at each other uh, back and forth. Which sounds kind of awesome to me, but I can understand why you might be turned off by that. But remember that we are called, according to 1 Peter 3 and other places in Scripture, to have a defense for our faith. But we are told, again in verse 15, to do it with gentleness and respect. And so that's the approach that we're going to take over the next couple weeks. But we are called to have an answer and a defense for our faith. Now, if you were asked this question that we are exploring today by a friend of yours who was a non-Christian, maybe somebody who was exploring the faith, maybe somebody who had heard of the Bible, but they weren't really familiar with it, but they knew that you believed in the Bible, and they came to you and said, look, I know that you believe in this Bible, and you know, I've read a little bit of it, it's really confusing to me, I don't understand a whole lot of it, but I know there's a lot of people who say that the Bible uh, is kind of just full of fairy tales and things that, aren't, that didn't really happen. Why do you believe the Bible? If they asked you that question, how would you answer it? And for many of us, we might even say, well, it's just, it's the word of God. I believe it because it's the word of God. And while that's great, and that's, it's great that you believe that, that may not be sufficient for your non-Christian friend to convince them that the Bible is actually reliable. And so is there a compelling reason for them to believe that the Bible is true and trustworthy? And if there is, what would that be? That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you're not a Christian or you have doubts about the reliability of the Bible, I hope that you'll listen to the claims as they're presented here today and next week and seriously consider whether or not you would consider the Bible to be trustworthy. 
And maybe you're wondering why we didn't talk about this the first week. Like, wouldn't it have made more sense to talk about whether or not we can trust the Bible before we start talking about what the Bible actually says and the purpose behind it and that kind of thing? Well, the reason for that is that we wanted to establish last week what the Bible is on its terms. In other words, even though we have the Bible, even though the Bible has historical accounts in it, the Bible is not primarily a history book about the entire world. The Bible's giving us history related to this redemptive story and the purpose of what Scripture is all about. And even though science and the Bible, I think in a lot of ways, are compatible, the Bible is not a scientific textbook either. Neither is it a philosophy book. And the point needs to be made at at the front that when we're talking about biblical apologetics, we need to be addressing the Bible from the standpoint of what it was written for and evaluating it on its terms. In other words, what did God intend for the Bible to be? And so we looked at these four things last week. This is what God intends for the Bible to be. First of all, God's word is God's words. We're talking about why the Bible exists. The primary reason why the Bible exists is that God wanted to give his personal words to us so that we would know who he is. Secondly, God's word is God's story. The Bible claims to be the story of everything. The story of creation, the story of the world, the story of human beings, the story even of what is coming in the future. And then third, God's word represents God's authority. The Bible claims to have authority over everything in creation to the degree that it defines the meaning and the purpose of everything that was created and everything that we see in our world. And number four, God's word demonstrates God's power. As we saw last week, the Bible claims to be living and active, that just by reading and understanding it, it can have some kind of impact in our lives. In fact, it transforms who we are just by reading it and understanding it. So to phrase it in these kinds of questions today, as we're asking the question of if we can trust the Bible, these questions might look something like this. Can we trust that the Bible is God's words to us? Can we trust that the Bible is the true story of everything? Can we trust that the Bible is the authoritative text that it claims to be? And finally, can we trust that the Bible has power to change our lives? How do we begin to answer these questions then? Well, if we go back to 1 Peter 3.15, as we read earlier, Peter tells us that we're to give a defense for the hope that we have. Now, what is the hope of the Christian faith? What is the hope of the Bible? Well, it could be many things, but specifically, as we saw last week, the main hope of the Bible, which everything else hangs on, is really the one event in history that the New Testament tells us about is the substance of our hope, which is the resurrection of Jesus. We could also say the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. That if those things happened, it changes everything. But if they didn't, then the whole biblical story, the redemptive story of God, falls apart. We see this actually, we see Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 actually doing biblical apologetics based on this important fact in defending the resurrection of Jesus in particular. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think as we look at this, we can see a case study for what it looks like to give a defense of the faith. Verse 12, it says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now those who have already fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
Now, we talked about this passage a few weeks, or this chapter at least, a few weeks ago, but what we see from this context is that Paul is addressing an issue that had come up in the early Corinthian church. And the Corinthians were basically being challenged by skeptics who were coming along and saying, you believe in somebody who rose from the dead and that he's the son of God? Don't you guys know that nobody raises from the dead? Nobody's ever seen that. Nobody's ever, ever experienced that before. It's not possible. And so some of the Christians in Corinth at the time were apparently believing what these false teachers and philosophers were saying. And so they decided, you know what? Maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And Paul comes with a defense of the hope, and he says, look, you guys, this is so critical that we understand that this actually happened because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything else falls apart. It's not a small issue. In fact, it is the most important issue. And so Paul offers a defense of what has happened. Simply stated, he says this, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then we shouldn't believe anything that Jesus said because he's not who he claimed to be. After all, he claimed that he would die and be risen again repeatedly throughout his ministry. However, if it did happen, then we have to believe everything he said because he predicted his death and resurrection. And the philosophers are right about one thing. No one ever comes back from the dead. So for Jesus to do it, he must have been the son of God as he claimed to be. Greg Gilbert says this, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then the only possible intellectually honest conclusion one can reach is that he really is who he claimed to be. Which sounds nice and neat, right? I mean, if it was just that simple to say, well, Jesus rose from the dead, and so that proves that all of Scripture is true, then we would have our apologetics completed for us. But maybe you see that it's not that easy. Because what we're relying on is the Bible to tell us that the resurrection happened. Well, if we're relying on the resurrection to validate the Bible and the Bible to validate the resurrection, then we haven't really done apologetics. All we've really done is kind of circular reasoning or circular logic. So we, what we have to do is then prove or establish the Bible as a credible source in general. And this is where we have to look at the historical claims of the Bible and examine them. In other words, can we trust the Bible as a reliable source of the kind of history that it claims to record? And if we can, then we can also reasonably assume that it recorded the crucifixion and the resurrection just as it happened. So if we simply approach the biblical doc uh, documents from a historical pr perspective, do they hold water as historical documents as much as they claim to record in history? To answer that accurately, we need to use the same standard that typical historical documents are measured by. In other words, when historians are considering whether something happened in history at any given point in time, the standard that is sometimes used is known as historical confidence. Now, whether that's, that, that term is used particularly or not, basically the idea behind it is that we, we need to believe that a certain event happened in history, and in order to do that, it has to be dependent on whether or not we think it was highly probable that that thing happened. So none of us were, say, at the Boston Tea Party or at the Battle of the Alamo. But we know that those things happened, or at least we believe that they happened, because we have eyewitness historical accounts who told us where it happened, how it happened, and, and in some ways, why it happened. And as those historical accounts came together and historical context was put around them, they became believable stories because enough eyewitnesses corroborated their testimonies of what happens. So we rely on eyewitnesses and we look for consistency within the statements and the stories that they tell to make sure that they agree with one another. 
And when those stories are retold and they're examined by other events of historical context that we know that happen, then we can begin to believe that the good historical evidence lines up with a certain amount of confidence that something really did happen in the way that we've recorded it in history. So in reference to the resurrection of Jesus then, theologian and historian N.T. Wright explains that standard this way. He says, look, that, the resu- that Jesus was resurrected remains, of course, unprovable in logical or mathematical terms. In other words, you can't prove that the resurrection happened just by logic or by some kind of mathematical certainty. But with history, it is not like that. Almost nothing is ever ruled out absolutely. History, after all, is mostly the study of the unusual and the unrepeatable. What we are after is high probability, and this is to be attained by examining all the possibilities, all the suggestions, and asking how they explain the phenomena or how a certain event happened. So that's the way that history is evaluated, and it's the standard that we should also expect the Bible to meet to the degree that it's claiming historical fact. Now, we obviously don't have time this morning to go over every historical record throughout the entire Bible. There are actually books that do that, really thick, big books, and so if you want to get into that, you can certainly do that. But what we're going to do today and next week is take a flyover of the historical reliability of the Bible so that we can connect it to the overall trustworthiness of what it claims to be. Again, the the central event is the resurrection of Jesus that holds the trustworthiness of the Bible completely together because the entire story from beginning to end is actually pointing to this event. And the resurrection, as you may know, is recorded in in the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. These are also the five books, coincidentally, that are considered to be the historical books of the New Testament. So those are the ones that we're going to look at a little bit closer. Now, here are the questions, though, that we have to ask about the historical reliability of these five books. In other words, these are the questions that most skeptics have voiced throughout the history of the Bible, and we're going to respond to each of these. We're going to respond to the first two. I'm going to read all five of them. There's five of them. We're going to respond to the first two today, and then we'll look at the next three next week. But the first question is this. Are the translations of the Bible that we have today reliable? Second question is, how do we know that the books of the Bible are the right books? Third question, are the authors of these books reliable as truthful historical witnesses? Fourth, did the events that are recorded in the Gospels really happen, especially the miracles and the resurrection account of Jesus? And then fifth, can we trust that Jesus is who the Bible records him to be? Okay, so as we answer these in two parts, we're going to be looking at the first two today. And the first two questions deal with what is known as textual or literary criticism. So after we're done today, you can tell all your friends that you're a textual critic, if that means anything to them. They probably won't care, but it's a cool thing to say. So what we're going to do is ask these questions that relate to textual criticism. First question is this. Are the modern translations of the Bible that we have today reliable? Now, you know if you've ever tried to buy a Bible before, there are all kinds of translations of the Bible. And they're usually represented by three or four letters. Probably most of us don't know what those letters stand for, but we see them on Bibles all the time. Things like ESV, NIV, TNIV, KJV, NKJV, NLT, NASB, HC, SB, NET. I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. And it can be confusing. And if that weren't enough, there's also all kinds of different editions of the Bible. Maybe you've noticed this before. We've got all kinds of different study Bibles, archaeological Bibles, apologetics Bibles, women's and men's study Bibles, Bibles for students, and Bibles for soldiers, Bibles for athletes, Bibles for prisoners, Bibles for your grandmother, all kinds of different editions of the Bible as well. 
Now, skeptics, and maybe you've, maybe you've wondered this before. Maybe you've wondered why there are so many translations of the Bible. Is it because they can't agree on what the Bible actually has to say? Well, many skeptics of Scripture have actually latched on to the idea that because we have so many different translations, nobody really knows what the Bible even says. Because if we can't even agree upon it in modern English translations, then where are we as far as what the Bible means? But is that true? Is that claim true? Well, the short answer is that those differences have been exaggerated by skepticism. And none of those differences in translation actually change the essential meaning of the Bible. To explain, let's start with how Bible translations happen. When one of these large Bible translations are getting started, basically what happens is that they get together a team of scholars. They don't just pull a bunch of guys off the street, but they pull together scholars who have been studying their particular scripture that they're going to translate for decades in some cases. So they've been studying the context of it, they've been studying the original language of it, and they are native English speakers as well. And so they understand the ins and outs of the nuances of ancient Hebrew for the Old Testament and ancient Greek for the New Testament. And they sit down as a team and they decide, how are we going to, 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 to uh, interpret the Bible or translate the Bible from the Old Testament, ancient Hebrew, to modern-day English and ancient Greek to modern-day English? And they strive for what is known as accuracy and reliability in every translation. Now, as you can imagine... Each translation team has to have its own approach because translating the scriptures from the original language to modern English can be a very difficult thing because it doesn't always translate word for word. All languages have their own ways of expression, their own idioms, their own figures of speech. I mean, think about it this way. If you think about it, those things change a lot. If you think about it uh, from one generation to another in the same culture, think about how many different expressions and figures of speech can change in just one generation or two generations. And what we're talking about is, is taking... It's taking words that were written 2,000 years ago in a different language, in a different culture, and translating those things into modern English. So there's a lot of work that goes into a translation, but the translation then is trying to take definitions of those words in the original language, blend them with context and usage, and remain as accurate and readable as possible. Now that's why we have so many different translations. Translation teams then have a certain perspective on how they're going to approach their translation. In other words, for some translations, they approach from what is known as a word-for-word -word translation perspective. And so they're taking words one at a time, sometimes two or three at a time, and trying to translate those word-for-word -word and then put them together in sentences and phrases that actually are readable. Now, if you've, if you've been reading the Bible before and you feel like at times the words that you're reading sound more like Yoda from Star Wars, you're probably reading a more word-for-word -word translation because they tend to be a little bit more wooden in their translation. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is the philosophy or the perspective that says we should translate thought for thought. And so in those translations, they take more phrases and equivalent phrases and try to translate those idioms from the old, from the old language, the original language, into modern English. And they tend to be a little bit more smoother in their translation, but not necessarily word for word. But with those approaches, does that mean that it changes the meaning of the Bible all that much? Well, that process explains really 99% of the differences between translations, and it doesn't actually change the meaning a whole lot. To give you an idea of the differences, here's an example of the same set of verses from Mark's gospel in a couple different translations. The first one I'm going to read from, and the first one you'll see on your slide, is from the ESV, which is more of a word-for-word -word translation approach. And it says this in Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse, but rather grew worse. 
She, had, she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So that's the ESV. Now compare it to the NLT, which is more of a phrase-for-phrase, dynamic thought-for-thought kind of translation. New Living Translation says this, the same verses, verse 25. Compare and contrast the differences. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Now, if you look at those two passages, still on the slide, you can see the difference in word choices, the difference in the way that the sentences are put together. But even with all of those differences that are there, does it change the meaning of the story at all? I mean, does it really matter that she touched his garment instead of touching his cloak, which can actually mean the exact same thing, right? And so notice the differences. Neither one of these renderings actually changed the meaning of what we're reading. And we can also say this now, the same kind of thing happens, and we'll talk about it a little bit more next week, when you line up the four gospel accounts. That there are differences in the way that the gospel writers record the same story, but in reality, what they're using is just different phrasing or different words in most cases. It doesn't mean it's different. It just means that it's recorded or worded in a different way. So the process of making English translations is one thing, but what if the original document that you're translating for, from, in other words, from the Hebrew document or the Greek document, isn't accurate itself? Because this is another claim that skeptics have, that the original documents that we translate from are not actually accurate, which is based upon the fact that we don't have the original parchments that were written on by biblical authors like Luke and Paul and John and Peter. But what we do have is reliable copies that were handwritten and passed down through generations, which we actually still have evidence of today. So do we need the original copies in order to be sure that we have the accurate texts in our modern Bibles today? Well, consider this. You may be familiar with Homer's The, the Iliad or Plato's The Republic or uh, Caesar's The Gaelic Wars. All pieces of ancient literature that were written around the time of the New Testament. And you may have studied them in high school or college. I remember personally in high school, we read through and studied Homer's Iliad. And I don't remember my English teacher ever telling me, well, because we don't have the original parchment that Homer wrote on, which we certainly don't, this book may or may not be what Homer originally intended to be written. In fact, we have better evidence, much better evidence, and much earlier evidence of New Testament writings than we do have of any of these three works that I just mentioned. In fact, I brought with me a little bit of a chart, a little chart this morning to show you, and it should be up on your slide now. And as you're looking at it, one thing you'll notice is that on the left-hand side, there is a chart with numbers and a list of all these different ancient works from this time period around when the New Testament was written. And then on the right-hand side, for you visual people, there's all these kind of graphs and circles that kind of give you an idea of the scope of what we're talking about. But what you can see there is that as of today, we have almost 5,800 existing copies of the New Testament written in Greek. And of those copies we have, the time gap that we have between they were, when they were originally written and the earliest handwritten copy that we have is actually 40 years. We also have translations that numbered about 18,000 that uh, most of them are Latin translations, but they come from like about 200 to 300 years after the original text was written. Now, by comparison, you can see the rest of those ancient writings that are there. Homer's Iliad is the, is the only one that really compares, and it doesn't really compare all that well. 1,757 existing copies we have of the Iliad, 
The earliest copy we have is 400 years after Homer originally wrote it on that parchment somewhere in Greece. And so you can see when it comes to the earliest copies and the most copies of ancient writings, the New Testament blows everything else out of the water, and yet none of those other things are ever questioned. Because historians know that those things, ancient writings, were really well preserved, including the New Testament. So not only do we have more copies of the Bible than any other work of literature, but the evidence that we have from things like archaeological discoveries, like the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, shows us that most of these copies were consistently copied accurately and passed down accurately from generation to generation. And we can see when we match all these thousands of copies up that most of them agree on almost everything that is written down, which tells us, which is important because it tells us that we have a common source from which all of these texts have been passed down. And 99% of the cases where there are variants, known as textual variants, 99% of those cases don't impact the doctrine of Scripture or the meaning of a given passage at all. Most of these differences, in fact, are due to scribal errors. One word copied wrong. Because if you can imagine, if there's a scribe who, by candlelight, is writing out and copying by hand one text to another, he might miss a word, he might copy a word down, he might even miss an entire line of Scripture and continue writing in the rest. But we have, fortunately, all these thousands that we can compare to realize where that scribe made his mistake. Now, so it seems that we can trust the books of the Bible at least the original writings, and how they came through accurately to us. But the question now becomes, can we trust the books that we have in our Bible today? In other words, are the books that we have in our Bible meant to actually be the books of the Bible? Do we have the right books that we're looking at? So how do you know, in other words, that when you're reading from the Gospel of Matthew, that this is actually divinely inspired and meant to be in the Bible? Well, maybe you've heard the term biblical canon before. The word canon is a Greek word that simply just means standard or rule, and we use it to talk about the biblical books that measure up to a certain standard of being in the Bible, which begs the question, how does each writing in the Bible reach the standard of being a biblical book? Well, it's not actually a formal thing, but what we can see from history is that it was a very intentional and trustworthy process. Establishing the biblical canon, in other words, was not arbitrary. And many, many modern skeptics claim that the canon wasn't actually established until the 3rd or 4th century by Constantine and all of his Roman officials, um, which was actually just a fictional theory made popular by the Da Vinci Code, if you remember that book several years ago. But the author, Dan Brown, actually admitted that was a fictional story. And so, anyway, skeptics have looked for any reason to discredit this process. But instead, the actual historical evidence shows us that the biblical canon was established much earlier, probably somewhere in the early to mid-2nd century, from the church, and we know that because we can see the church leaders' writings on these books, and they clearly establish the books that are in the Bible versus the books that are extra-biblical. On top of that, all the biblical books seem to share the common traits, and these four traits in particular seem to be the primary texts from his, or primary tests, I should say, from history that show us exactly why these books were put in the Bible versus some others who claimed to be biblical as well. These tests are very interesting, and I think as we put them together, we can see why it is that they were evaluated this way and how each one of the books we have in the New Testament measure up to this standard. The first test is what was known as apostolicity. 
And that simply means that a document was either written by an apostle of Jesus or by a close companion of that apostle who could write down their eyewitness testimony of Jesus' ministry. This is obvious on the one hand why we want that, right? Because you want somebody who, can actually, who actually saw and heard what Jesus said to write those words down or somebody that they could at least report to and they could write it down. So for instance, Matthew and John were obviously apostles, but Mark and Luke were companions of apostles. And so they wrote down from firsthand experience what the apostles saw and heard Jesus say. Now, we also know this, that Jesus said at one point to the apostles, the Holy Spirit will come and remind you of all the things that I have taught you and will teach you even more. And of course, this goes back to last week when we talked about Scripture being God-breathed. We have to have confidence in the fact that the Holy Spirit held all of this together. If he could speak through human beings, he could certainly hold his word together throughout a couple of generations. So that's test one. Test two is antiquity. That a document that, that, a document that claimed to be scriptural had to be written in the first century so that it was written during the same generation of the apostles and the people who lived where Jesus was ministering and teaching which again adds validity to it. So that if you're writing, it has to come out of that same generation that saw and heard what Jesus said and did. Test number three is orthodoxy. A given book had to agree with the teachings that were handed down from Jesus based on oral tradition of the time. And this is why the canon was established earlier because the people who heard Jesus' words had to agree that a given teaching that was written in a book lined up with what Jesus actually said. So if it claimed to be a biblical book, but it contradicted what Jesus said or it recorded wrong what he said or did, there would be people right there quickly saying, no, we saw Jesus, we heard him. He never said that. We never saw him do that. And it doesn't match up with the rest of what he taught. And test four is what, was, what is known as universality. In the first century, it was a particular problem around the area where a lot of people would come up with these books that they claimed to be scripture. And they would come out of a region of like Caesarea and there would be a sect of like 20 to 30 people who would say, this is a biblical book and it rises to divine authority. Typically those were rejected in favor of universality because the universality test made sure that the books that were held as authoritative scripture were used and valued by every part of the world. So there was validation in Caesarea and Jerusalem and in Rome and all over the known world. Now, we have examples of several writings throughout history that claim to be biblical books, but they were rejected because they didn't pass criteria like this. The early Christians and biblical writers took seriously what they considered to be Scripture. And we have to believe that they weren't going to let anything in the canon that obviously wasn't Scripture in their minds. And they were good at identifying false teaching because they knew what Jesus actually taught. And because the words that he taught were extremely valuable to them. Think about it, words that they recorded and defended even to their deaths. So this morning, we've banked a lot on the apostles and their testimony of who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught, what they wrote down about what he taught. And so it's natural to ask the next question. Can we trust these apostles, these authors? Are they reliable? Were they telling the truth about what they saw? Or were they somehow deceived? Now, we'll answer that question next week as we take a closer look at whether we can trust the biblical authors as reliable sources and if the events of Jesus in the early church, as the events of Jesus and the events of the early church actually happened. But as we close today, I want to say this. Whether you are a Christian or not, 
you know that the Bible is the most important book in human history. I don't think that's debatable. As I said last week, it has sold the most copies, been translated into the most languages, uh, been the most revered for 2,000 years now. And it has also been the most debated. We've addressed some of that debate today, but I don't want to leave us with the impression that the Bible is just another book to be picked apart. Because it's important to remember that the Bible is not just a book to be studied and debated, it is a book to be believed. It claim, its claims are the most unique and powerful claims that we have ever seen in human history. And if they were proven wrong, as Paul would say, the Christian faith is worthless and all Christians should be pitied for believing any of it. Because in fact, it is a bunch of fairy tales if that's the case. However, if these claims are true, which millions upon millions of people believe that they are, then they literally change everything. If you come to a place of believing the Bible or believing God's words that have been given to you, it must change your life because that is its purpose. So as I say that and we close today, I want you to consider what's at stake. We're not just talking about whether the Bible is true in some just kind of objective way and then we can say that it's true, we can give it a thumbs up and establish it as a reliable historical account. What we're saying is that this book, if it's true, changes your life. And it calls from you a response of faith. That's true for those of us who believe it, certainly. And that's the challenge and the call to those of us who are still trying to figure out whether it's true or not. These are the very words of God to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark about who you are. You have not left us in the dark about what you have done and how you have acted throughout human history. You have given us your word. And so, Father, we are thankful for that. I, I, I pray that as we continue to study throughout this series, not only what we've talked about today, but what we talk about next week, and as we continue throughout this series, as we look at what you have to say from a biblical perspective, Lord, you would, you would infuse and impress upon our hearts how true your words really are. Because as we've talked about, we can get to a place where intellectually we agree with what you have to say, and we intellectually agree that maybe these things actually happened in history, but it's a whole other level to receive these things by faith and to consider what implications these would have on our lives, not only now, but for eternity. Lord, we thank you that your words are living and active. We thank you that it is your spirit himself who has breathed these words so that they have life. And Lord, would you breathe life into our hearts today, even as we consider your word? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website, at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Well, thank you again for joining us. I want to encourage you uh, to join us for next week when we go through part two of Can We Trust the Bible? And in the meantime, if you have any questions that you want to follow up with, please email us, go online, ask any kind of questions that, you know, after this first part, maybe some questions came to mind that you want to clarify. Maybe something wasn't 
expressed as, as clearly as you'd like it. We'd love to be able to answer those questions, so please email us or go on to our website. And I pray that today has encouraged you, uh, especially those of us who believe in Scripture, that your faith might be a little bit more grounded. Maybe you felt like, I never had a reason to doubt that God's Word is God's Word, but maybe as we heard a little bit more about how God really acts in history, it's a reminder to you that God really cares about what is going on in your life and that His Word is meant to impact your life in a real way as it has consistently throughout history. Thank you again for joining us. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.